0: It's such a joy to be here with you guys this morning. I like not only have I not gotten the privilege of teaching at the commons before. I've actually never been with you guys on a Sunday morning, which is just insane to me because I'm here like almost every other day of the week. <laughs> this is the first time that I've seen the space set up like this and seen all your smiling faces. It's it's just um, amazing to be here. I'm honestly grateful um like Devin was saying, not only um, for his friendship, but also for the partnership that this church has had with the ministry of Jews for Jesus and the things that we've gotten to do here at Upside Down have been greatly strengthened by the presence of this community here. And the the prayer that you guys have invested in, in being on mission for Jesus in this neighborhood, in this space, The the prayers that have gone up to God to claim like territory here for the kingdom of God, I've felt that as I've done ministry here. People walk in through those doors on a day-to-day basis to get a cup of coffee. And over and over again, our baristas say, people say, there's something different about this space. And I know that's because not only were we praying as we launched this space, but you guys are here every week worshiping. You guys are here praying and interceding for the neighborhood and for the people here and so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for continuing to follow Jesus on mission here. I really believe in this community. I believe in what TCLA is doing. I believe in Devon's leadership. You guys have an amazing pastor in Devon. Just like praise God for his leadership and pray for him like weekly, okay? Just just do that for me, okay? Um Grateful for you guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm the LA branch director of Jews for Jesus. Um, I get to volunteer as a pastor of Collective Church. I don't get paid for that, which is just actually really fun, because then I get to look at all the other volunteers at the church and say, I'm just like you guys. Like, <laughs> we're in this together. Um, upside down, this whole space is a huge part of the story of how God has called me to be here in LA ministering to the Jewish community. I myself am Jewish. I followed Jesus, the first Jewish person in my family that met Jesus was my great-great-grandmother back in Ukraine in the 1800s. Her husband had become a secret believer in Jesus and didn't tell her until after they got married. So imagine what that conversation was like, right? Yeah, she wouldn't talk to him for about three months, three whole months, and then one day, Um, She was reading the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, for herself, and she scrolled over by the grace of God through the direction of the Holy Spirit to Isaiah chapter 53, read of the suffering servant, and understood the atoning sacrifice that Jesus provided for our sin, and right then she believed. And so every generation since then, not only have we been Jewish people following Jesus, we've also all been evangelists. Like literally every generation have been evangelists to our own people. So I had zero choice of what I wanted to do in my life. (laughs) That that much, honestly, I like not, not really. There There are some family members who are doing like business and stuff like that, but at least one per generation. My dad is in Jewish ministry. So, but he used to say to me, like, doesn't matter what you want to do with your life. You could be like a garbage collector. As long as you are doing what God wants you to do, I'm okay with that. And that lack of pressure actually gave me the freedom to step into serving, to be in ministry, um, that lack of pressure. So parents, you don't have to put pressure on your kids, you just have to pray for them. That's it. Um, So it's such a joy to be here. My family is all here. You get a chance to meet them, we'll stay for lunch. Um, I'm so excited to be able to share in this series, specifically, Wilderness Reflections. Um, The wilderness is a really big theme In the story of ancient Israel, um, in the story of the Jewish people, we've been exiled a bunch of times. Um, It just keeps happening. (laughs) I don't know. Um, But being in the wilderness is a really good time to get perspective on the rest of life. And specifically this morning, we're going to look at the topic of prayer. Prayer is essential to make it through the wilderness because prayer is the way that God has invited us to build our relationship with Him over time. Disclaimer, I am no expert on prayer, okay? I need to grow in prayer. I freely admit that this is something I need to grow in, that I'm actively pursuing. Um, So I'll humbly share what I believe God has given to me to share with you this morning. But again, no expert. Happy to answer your questions. So we're going to go to the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. This is one of the most fascinating stories um, or just little snippets on prayer in the entire Bible. And it's very clear. So we're going to read it together. And I know you guys typically um, do this. So we're going to stand, if you're able, as we read from the book of Luke. It's in your handout. And we'll pray together. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, to his chosen people who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, Will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Father, we look into the word that you have preserved for us over thousands of years expectantly because we know that it is by this word that your Holy Spirit continues to speak to us today. And as we consider this topic of prayer and this example through the story that Jesus taught, I pray that all of the things that are currently separating us from pursuing you in prayer would be examined that they would come to the forefront of our minds and our hearts and we'd be able to surrender those things to you so that we can have our relationship with you change this morning in the way that we continue to pursue you in prayer. I pray that in faith knowing that you are with us right now that you're ministering by your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So, I'm sure you've heard this, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results, right? Yes, all of us have heard this. All of us have also done this. (laughs) We also, we do the same things over and over, like when you make plans on a Saturday, like in the valley or something like that, and you expect there to be no traffic when you come back in the afternoon, Like you go up to the valley, I'm gonna see a friend. Come back on the 405, hop 405 south. It's gonna take you two hours. Why do we keep doing this to ourselves, saying it's gonna be different the next time? It's never different. It's always crazy. The question that is before us today, that just like hits us like a ton of bricks when we read this story. Is this what we're doing when we pray for the same thing over and over again and nothing happens? Is this this what Jesus is asking his disciples to do by telling them the story? He tells us what he wants from us, what he hoped to produce within his disciples who he was telling the story right at the beginning. The parable says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. We know exactly what we're supposed to do as a result of reading the story. Keep praying. Don't give up but this is exactly what we do. We give up. I tried it, doesn't work, Let I'm done. Just like the judge in this story, it says he refused, some translations say even ignored, this widow who is continuing to come to him for justice. Is this what God is doing to us when we continue to come to him? Is he ignoring our prayers or refusing to answer for some reason. To produce the desired result of persistence in prayer, Jesus does not command his disciples to stop whining and deal with it, nor does he unpack the intricacies of the Trinity and how God answers prayer and categorizes them based on their urgency. So if you don't see any results by next Tuesday, Try getting on your knees next time and then we can all do the hokey pokey, turn ourselves around. That's not how prayer works either. To get at his friend's heart level, Jesus tells them a story to show them a vivid picture of what their prayers can look like if they don't give up. And the story is for us as well. The judge refuses, the widow pesters him relentlessly. He finally gives her what she's asking for. What is Jesus saying? To pray in this way, to pray when it looks like nothing is happening, we have to understand a few central things that are going to guide the rest of our time together. We have to understand first what we're praying for, who we're praying to, who we are in the story, and also how to continue in prayer. So first, what are we praying for? The widow is not praying for just anything. It's not saying that you keep asking God over and over again. If you ask him enough times, he'll give you whatever you want, right? Like that annoying kid in the grocery store asking for more hohos from his mom. Parents, yes? Uh, like every time you go to the grocery store, they, we used to put the kids like in the front part of the cart with the little clippy thing, which was great because then they couldn't go reaching for things. But as soon as they don't fit in that anymore, you have to like walk with them in the grocery store and they're just like, ooh, this, I want that. And no, nope, not getting that. And this is not, what. this is exactly what we think praying to God is for when we bring him our desires and stuff like that. Please, oh, please, oh, please, right? That was me as the kid, by the way, like asking for more ho- I love ho-ho's. Um, but verse 8, it tells us the point. What is the context for this parable being told? Verse 8 says, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth the context of this parable is looking forward towards jesus's return what all followers of jesus have been awaiting since the day that he ascended into heaven after he was raised from the dead the second coming we call it we believe that jesus died for our sins rose on the third day ascended into heaven is seated at the right hand of god the father and is coming back again and so He's trying to teach them to not lose heart because there will be a delay in the Lord's return. Just before this parable in Luke chapter 17, he teaches them about what things will be like on earth just before he returns. And the conditions of what the world is gonna look like before Jesus comes back again, will not be that conducive to the kind of faith that Jesus is calling them to. It will be a sort of wilderness. Read with me. It's also in your handout, Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30. Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and a flood came and destroyed them all likewise just as it was in the days of lot they were eating and drinking buying and selling planting and building but on the day when lot went out from sodom fire and sulfur rained from heaven destroyed them all so will it be on the day when the son of man is revealed yikes some people think that the world will be in such an obvious state of crisis before Jesus comes back, like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Everything's like volcanoes erupting, things are just going crazy. But the Bible says it will actually be much less obvious. While God's people are waiting diligently for him to come back, things are actually not going to hell in a handbasket. People who are waiting for Jesus will look stupid, while everyone else around them is having the time of their lives. Jesus' followers will look like the stupidest, most boring, most regressive people on the planet because they won't just sit back and enjoy the way the world is. Jesus' people are marked because rather than treating themselves, they will deny themselves. Rather than listening to our hearts, we preach to our hearts. We're in a prayer meeting instead of swiping left and right or at the club on Friday night. And for some people, this time of waiting and looking foolish will prove too difficult. The greatest danger during this time is not of the world exploding into chaos necessarily, although pandemics and wars certainly make it seem like we're in a very volatile state. But the greatest danger is actually of being too discouraged and giving up or more probably, to distract it. Maybe our visions of like the end, the end times, need to look a lot less like left behind. <laughs> Some of you know that, like crazy monsters and eruptions and stuff like that. A lot less like that and a little more like the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should go. It's a very LA movie always the scene of the apocalypse, right? Los Angeles. But Her is a very different type of apocalypse than other apocalyptic movies. You know, Joaquin Phoenix, he falls in love with his smartphone AI, and they have this weird relationship where he's so distracted from life that he continually builds this relationship with a person that he can't see or touch or, wait a minute, that sounds like a prayer. So he builds this relationship with this woman that he falls in love with. And you walk, he walks around town, down, beautiful downtown Los Angeles. It's been like completely redesigned, I guess. <laughs> and uh, not like the west side. Beautifully redesigned. And you see everybody else around him is doing the exact same thing. Everyone is hooked in. And author Mark Sayers, who I just love in his book, Disappearing Church, comments on this very reality. It's in your handout. It's a fairly long quote, but bear with me. This is what he says about it. No one is speaking. Everyone stares intently at their phone. Human interaction has disappeared. The public square has died. A fiery comet has not dropped from the sky, nor has a terrorist mastermind set off a dirty bomb, nor has Godzilla descended upon the city in vengeance. Yet an apocalypse of sorts has occurred. No one can see it because the city still stands, the lights blink, and the buildings, like the people, are still beautiful. Structurally, the culture stands, yet emotionally, socially, and spiritually, it is disappearing. It's a kind of beautiful apocalypse, a beautiful, designed public space in which individuals seek autonomy and freedom only to become paralyzed and anxious. Does that sound familiar? What will Jesus' people be doing when he returns? Will we be crying day and night for justice, like the widow in this story, or will we be complaining about the new iPhone update? (laughs) What do we pray for? What constitutes our prayers? Is it for comfort or justice? Four times in this passage it says justice, justice. Maybe, as we think about what we pray for, That part of our frustration with prayer has to do with an unwillingness to have our prayers shaped by God's agenda rather than our own. We need to be willing to admit that our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need and what we don't need. The Book of James says that you have not because you ask not and you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. That's James four, if you want to look it up. Through our journey in prayer, which is simply the way that we develop our relationship with God, he is training us to ask for the things that reflect his heart and his agenda rather than our own. For some of us, prayer can be another way to control our circumstances. Praying for things are not necessarily bad but that the goal of our prayers is not to grow or become more of who God wants us to be, but to be safe and comfortable. But God cannot and will not be controlled. His delay, listen to this, his delay to acquiesce to our desires is not a failure to answer. His delay to acquiesce to our desires in prayer is not a failure to answer. So do we just not pray for anything because our motives are so twisted? Absolutely not. Our prayers for our immediate desires and needs are also essential because they bring us close to God. Even if we don't understand the big picture and what is best for us in the long run, God wants us to draw near to him so that our desires can be shaped by him. Uh, The first time, my uh, daughter asked me for an iPhone. She was seven years old. <laughs> no shade on parents. If you want to get your, uh, your kids an iPhone be- before they turn you know, 16, 17, that's totally fine. By the way, Nora, that's when you're getting an iPhone, if ever. 16, 17. Now, do I love my daughter? Absolutely. Do I love her more or less by not getting her an iPhone when she's seven years old? <laughs> she came to me and said, my friend Layla has an iPhone. Please get me an iPhone. I know you love me. <laughs> she doesn't remember this. Of course I love her, but I will give and withhold what I know it is best for her because she was unable to make that distinction at the time. The last thing that I would want is for her to keep from me what she really wants of course I want her to ask. We don't get to the place where we're asking God for the things that he wants us to give by concealing the things we want him to give. That's where we start. I love the book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's it's in your handout, this little quote. He says, all of Jesus' teaching on prayer in the gospels can be summarized with one word, ask. His greatest concern is that our failure or reluctance to ask keeps us distant from God. His primary concern was to get us into the game. We need to get into the game. Not when we discover that our prayers have been not shaped by God's agenda, but our own, that should not lead us to despair. It should lead us to be thankful that God was listening to us the whole time. So we pray without losing heart so that our desires can be continually shaped by God's agenda, that's the what. Secondly, there's the who. Who are we praying to? Is God like this unjust judge in the story? Chapter 18, verse 2 again. It says, he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This judge plays the God role in the story. The most groundbreaking truth that can change how and why we pray is who we believe we're praying to. Not only do our thoughts and our beliefs about God change the way that we approach him in prayer, it changes also how we interpret the results of how life plays out after we have prayed. If we can't see the direct and immediate results of how God interacts with our prayers, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to look for signs? Are we supposed to get really superstitious? Are we supposed to will ourselves into believing that our prayers were answered even if they're not? If you don't believe in God, or trust Him today, you probably see this lack of immediate results as evidence that either God doesn't exist or that He just doesn't care. If that's where you're at this morning, I don't really believe in God, probably doesn't exist because I tried praying that one time and nothing really happened. The break in the chain of cause and effect causes us to sometimes dismiss prayer as merely wishful thinking, right? but those who might believe prayer is nonsense have a bit of trouble with what that means. It means, if you don't believe in prayer, it means that we have nothing to do with the desires that we have that might lead us to yearn for something beyond what we ourselves are capable of doing, right? What do you do when you want something that you know you are powerless to bring about yourselves? maybe the healing of a relationship, to have a sense of purpose, to have freedom from this binding circumstance, what do you do? There's nothing you can do. The only alternative to prayer is that everything depends on us, or maybe luck. No, if, if you want something and you don't believe that prayer does anything, you actually have to do something to make it happen. And this is tremendous pressure, right? If prayer is fake then we have no basis to believe that there is anyone or anything beyond ourselves working for our benefit it all depends on us but what if god does exist and can hear our prayers what is this god like what is his character is he good but powerless to do anything about what we pray for oh wish i could help hands are tied thanks for asking (laughs) or maybe He can do whatever he wants, but he just doesn't want to. Like the judge in this story, most people, even Christians, believe some form of one of these errors on a regular basis. And we relate to God based on these equal but opposite errors. Theologically speaking, it's saying that God is either omnipotent or benevolent, right? He's either all powerful or all good. The story that Jesus tells presents a caricature of God that many of us are prone to believe. How does this affect our prayer life? We need to admit that our view of God has been constructed through a lot of discipline. Whether that's authority figures in our lives who have let us down over and over again, and we project that onto God, or unjust things that have happened to us. But God is not like those authority figures, right? God will always break promises that he never made to begin with. (laughs) He does not promise comfort or a life free from hardship. Once again, the context of this passage, those who wait patiently for the return of Jesus are promised an incredibly difficult road through the wilderness. Unlike the unjust judge, the God we pray to is both powerful and good. If he was only good but not powerful, we might as well pray to the person next to us because they have just as much control over the world. If he is all powerful but not good, we have no confidence that he would listen or care, but he is both good and powerful. Read again verses 6 and 7 with me. And the Lord said, Jesus said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. The argument here is from the lesser to the greater. If this unjust judge finally gives this widow what she was looking for, how much more will God, who loves you, give you everything that you need? There's another argument from the lesser to the greater. Earlier in the in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. This is not in your handout. Luke chapter 11, verse 11 says, "What father among you?" Jesus says, "If his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a snake? Okay. If he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? I hope not. If you then, who are evil, thanks Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children." comes naturally. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He is not an unjust judge. He is our heavenly father. So how do we relate to God as both father and judge? We need to understand who we are in the story. Verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Why did Jesus choose to make the character in the story a widow? This was someone who deserved an audience and wasn't receiving it. In the Torah, in the Law of Moses, the guidebook of ancient Israel, It stated that the responsibility of judges and rulers of the cities was to ensure that widows were cared for. The administration of justice in ancient Israel made sure that everyone who was widowed was adequately provided for. So this should have produced righteous indignation in those who were listening to Jesus' story. Why is he ignoring her? What's going on? What's this guy's problem? The widow is coming to the judge for justice. That's what judges do, right? But he was failing to do his job and his lack of care and his delay in doing his job is exactly the characteristic that we ascribe to god this is what makes us so angry or confused when our prayers are answered god don't i belong to you don't you care do something right the delay in justice must be either his lack of concern or his inability to do something about it. we see injustice in the world and we say, God, do something about it. Or if you cared, you would do something about it. Or people who don't believe in God, if there was a God, he should care enough to do something about this. But most of us who follow this line of reasoning don't think about where it ends. We don't think about what it would mean if justice were truly served and that we would find ourselves on the wrong side of it. We believe that we likewise deserve an audience with God. The reality is, we are less like the widow in this story than we'd like to believe. Scripture does portray God as a judge, but as a just judge who knows the right time and manner to administer justice. The problem is, we have less in common with the widow in the story than the person she was crying out for justice against. If we're honest with ourselves, this means that the time between God's people crying out for justice and when justice is served is not a lack of concern on God's part. It is patience. It is God's patience with us. He says, uh, Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance we need to see come to grips with the fact that we have more in common with this adversary in the story and kind of with the unjust judge because of our sin our sin keeps us from God because it is cosmic rebellion against him a God who created and loves us, whose power sustains our lives at this very moment, who pays the oxygen bill for your existence, we do not deserve an audience with him. He is showing us patience, giving us an opportunity to know and trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, God has been patient with you. Because Jesus experienced God's Injust God's justice on our behalf, which was the greatest injustice in history. Jesus, the true righteous sufferer, he has asked exactly for what he wanted because he knew who he was praying to and who he was, and he still didn't get it. Those of you who remember the, the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he was going to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, he prayed. The only one who ever deserved to have his prayer answered. And he said, Lord, if it's your will, let there be another way. Please take this cup from me. Maybe there's another way to accomplish this whole thing. Jesus prayed that. And he deserved to have his prayers answered. But he gave up that right to ensure that we could always have an audience with our Heavenly Father. prayed and asked god for some other way to accomplish the mission but before we can pray like the widow in the story we have to look to Jesus' death where he experienced the verdict that we deserved because of jesus we are his chosen people we are the chosen ones in the story verse 7 it says will not god give justice to his chosen people who cry to him day and night In Jesus, we see God's proof that he is in it with us and is not asking us to do anything that he didn't do himself. His prayers were not answered in the way that he asked, but he still asked. So finally, how can we have this enduring faith in spite of not having our prayers answered when we think they should be? Again, How do we, verse 1, pray and not lose heart? The obvious question is, what about the things that we pray for that are so clearly good but are unanswered? And now circumstances have changed where it's impossible for that prayer to be answered. Maybe a loved one who has passed away that we have prayed for, a circumstance that can no longer be changed. What's the sense in being persistent like this widow when it appears that God's answer to our prayer is no? Maybe there's something that you have repeatedly prayed for in your life that there's been no clear answer about. More difficult still, a prayer that can no longer be answered in the way that you were asking. For me as a child of divorce, it's been the reconciliation of my parents and my mother's salvation for over 10 years now. Over 10 years I've been praying, Lord, Please work in her heart. I grew up in a home where my mom loved Jesus, taught me about Jesus, but then just about 12 years ago, just walked away from him entirely. And I have not known what to do other than pray that God would change her heart because I certainly cannot. Her heart is hardened against him. How is it possible not to lose heart after that, after this much time? One thing that kept gnawing at me from the story Why does the widow continually go back to the judge when she knows he has no interest in justice? Why? We understand now why we would have the motivation and the encouragement to keep going back to our Heavenly Father who loves us so much that he gave his son for us. But why would the widow keep going back when she knows that the judge couldn't care less? It is because she is desperate. She is desperately dependent on the outcome. She knows that the judge is the only one who can give her justice. It cannot be achieved by any other means. She has exhausted all other possibilities, so now she has this dogged determination. The language here doesn't refer to just the amount of times that she persisted in going to the judge, but also the manner in which she went. She cried out day and night. This is not irrational desperation. It is incredibly rational, incredibly realistic. The judge is the only one who can do anything about it. That's the way things go. It doesn't even say that she has faith that the judge will change his mind. It's clear that this is her last resort, her only possible means of justice, and she, she has this almost insane focus, right? Doing the same thing over and over again. She has nothing left to lose. The widow has no one to plead her case, and her life depended on it. Listen, only when we know that our greatest desires and our deepest longings can only be satisfied by God, will we stop trying to satisfy those longings through other means besides him and not hesitate to go to him repeatedly. Only when we know that what we truly need is something only God can provide will we stop trying to search for it elsewhere, will we continually pray over and over again in spite of whatever we see as a result. Francis Anderson, a great author, commentator, puts it this way. Hand the matter over to God more trustingly, less fretfully, and do it without insisting that God should first answer all of your questions. Maybe you're here this morning and you're holding back from trusting God because you're wanting him to first answer some questions. fulfill some prerequisites. By doing this, we need to see that we're actually playing the judge. We're sitting down in his chair and saying, plead your case to the one who created the stars. God is a righteous judge. He does not play by our rules. He does not give answers on our terms, but neither does he blast us or hold us in contempt of court. He graciously comes to us in Jesus and convicts us of our sin, of our misguided understandings of him. And he says, You happen to be in my chair. (laughs) But not just that, in Jesus, He took the death sentence for us. He doesn't sit down in the judge's seat until he first takes the death penalty on himself. So, we need to be encouraged to pray, not give up. Pray like our lives depend on it because they do. And pray like Jesus' life was given for it because it was. Let's pray. Lord, we are incredibly challenged by the story that you told because we so often give up. We so often lose heart. It's really easy because we're time-bound creatures. And we don't see results for something. We think that something's not working, and so we need to put in some other variable into the equation. But Lord, you are not an equation. You are our Heavenly Father, and you love us. Help us to see you that way, not as an unjust judge, but as a righteous judge, as our heavenly Father. Let us not continually come to you, even for those of us this morning who have been praying for something continually and have seen nothing happen, I pray for them right now, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, come and speak to them and give them the encouragement they need to persist, to keep going, because you are not far, you are near to us, and you are good. And you are powerful. We claim that power this morning in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that you are at work right now in this place. I pray for anybody who does not yet know you, that they would place their trust in Jesus today for the forgiveness of their sins. Thank you for your patience towards us. We love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.